My name is Kyle, uh, and I want to welcome you here in person and to those who are listening on our podcast. I'm glad you are here as well. For the final question of our series, we are actually leaving the Gospels, and we're going to the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. We'll be there in just a moment. Let's give a little information about the Acts of the Apostles just for a moment. You probably know this, but it's good to be reminded it was written by Luke, whom Paul called a doctor in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14. You probably know this, the Acts of the Apostle was the second of Luke's writings, the first obviously being the Gospel that bears his name. And Luke's two books comprise, get this, the single largest block of New Testament writings by a single person. He has written more even than the Apostle Paul has written in our New Testament. And what's intriguing and most fascinating about these two books is that we know exactly why both of them were written. Luke actually tells us the purpose for writing these two books. And he also tells us the name of the person that received them. It's a man named, you remember this, Theophilus. We know this from the introduction of his gospel, and we also know this from the introduction of Acts. So I know I told you to turn to Acts, but I'm gonna start in Luke chapter one, verses three and four. Let's see if you can catch the purpose of these writings. This is what Luke wrote. It seemed good to me, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that, and here's the purpose, that you may know the truth concerning the things of which you have been informed. Luke extends this purpose in the Acts of the Apostles in a very similar way. So if you're still in Acts, we're gonna pick up right there. We find this in the very first verse of Acts. Acts chapter one, verse one. Listen to what Luke wrote. In the first book, meaning his gospel, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. Now, we don't know much more about Theophilus other than he was the original recipient of these two books, but we do know, we do know why they were written, and here it is. In the clearest of terms, Luke told Theophilus that he, Luke, researched and recorded an orderly account of the life of Jesus. And of all these verses that we've just read, the two or three in Luke chapter one and the one in Acts chapter one, of all of these verses that we read, in fact, of all the verses that Luke ever wrote, I think that the weightiest verse is actually Acts chapter one, verse one. It carries the most weight. Let's read it again. Here it is. In the first book, let's see if you can catch this, by the way. In the first book, Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. Now that one verse, that one sentence carries so much weight because of one word. You probably caught it. It's the word began. It's the word began. Luke considered his first book, his gospel, as just the beginning of everything that Jesus would accomplish. Now remember, 
Luke's gospel contains Jesus' birth, his life, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension. According to Luke, all of that is just the beginning. And Luke thought that his second volume, the Acts of the Apostles, he thought of this book as what Jesus would do next and what he's yet to do. Jesus was clearly not finished with his work at his ascension. The story did not end there. He's not dead. He's not the deist version of God who winds up the clock of time and steps back and lets time run out, never getting involved in our affairs or the affairs. That's not who, that's not who Jesus is. He was active and engaged in acts, and he's active and engaged right now. Here's something kind of interesting. Did you know that Luke actually records the ascension of Jesus twice? He recorded it for the first time in Luke chapter 24, and then he records it again in Acts chapter 1. You know why he did that? I'm going to tell you why. Because Luke saw this first chapter of his second volume as a bridge. It is the end of the beginning. But it's also the beginning of the end. So we're going to talk about both of those in the next few moments. First, let's talk about the end of the beginning. So Acts chapter 1, if you've got it, you can see it, opens with a resurrected Jesus. He's alive. He's breathing. He's eating. Luke actually writes in chapter 1, verse 3, that Jesus gave his disciples, I love this phrase, many convincing proofs that he was alive, that he was not an apparition, that he was not a dream. And his teaching between his resurrection and his ascension at the end of the beginning was still about the kingdom of God. Now, we've talked about the kingdom of God some in this series. It's a kingdom that Jesus first proclaimed, at least in Luke's writings, in Luke chapter 4, verse 43. Jesus' reference to the kingdom of God was a direct response and a direct remedy, now get this, to the kingdoms, plural, the kingdoms of the world controlled by the devil. The devil actually admitted that he controlled them when he tempted Jesus. Listen to what he says in Luke chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. This is in the temptations of Jesus. The devil led Jesus up to a high place and he showed him in an instant all the kingdoms, plural, all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to Jesus, I will give you all of their authority and splendor. It's been given to me. And I can give it to anyone I want to. Now, you know this story. Jesus obviously rebuffs the devil's proposition. So we could later in the same chapter inaugurate the kingdom, singular. The kingdom, the kingdom of God. This kingdom destroys all the other kingdoms. Or in other words, the kingdom of God destroys anything that requires a misguided allegiance for the sake of exclusions. Because in Jesus, all divisions have been erased. They've been destroyed. Paul actually wrote that the cross was God's weapon of destruction against all of this division 
in Colossians chapter 1. What's alarming to us, though, I think, is that those closest to Jesus were still completely confused about the kingdom after Jesus' resurrection. They just watched him erase the power of death, the ultimate and assumed final division in humanity. They watched him offer his own body, his own life, as proof that God had destroyed this very last division. Yet, he still had to take time to teach them more about the kingdom of God. They didn't get it. They didn't get it. So they asked him a question, and this is the final question of our series. This is from Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Then they gathered around him, around Jesus, and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, before we talk about the question, I kind of love the touch of authenticity that Luke provides here. He's the consummate investigator. He just didn't include the question, but he included the physical posturing of the questioners. They gathered around Jesus. They closed in on him, right? As if they anticipated that he would give them some secret that he may not give to everyone else. But their question here betrayed their thoughts. In spite of the explosive miracle of resurrection, they were still disappointed with Jesus. They wanted Israel as it was in the Old Testament, free, free from Rome. They wanted an Israel with a, with a temple. They wanted it to be the first and the supreme of all the nations of the world. They wanted to continue their very temporal and their very divisive heritage. Divisive. Remember that. We're going to come back to that in a few moments. If those things were to happen, if the kingdom was going to be restored to Israel, then first, Rome would necessarily need to be overthrown. In other words, they expected, they expected a miracle, or at least another miracle, because there was absolutely no way a small people group, they were slaves really, these Jewish people in the eastern part of the empire would be able to do this. They didn't have an army, they didn't have money, they didn't have resources. So Jesus answered their question. And as we've seen thus far, it wasn't quite what they expected. Listen to his answer. You can read along with me from Acts chapter 1, verses 7 through 8. Jesus said to them, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So there are a couple things in Jesus' answer. We can spot these pretty easily. Number one, the timing is on a need-to-know basis, apostles, and you don't need to know. And number two, you're actually going to receive something, a gift. You're going to receive the Holy Spirit from the Father, his anointing on your life. And that's going to make your witness of my resurrection mobile. That's what he says. My guess here, with Jesus' final statement to them, it's the last thing he says to them, by the way, is that they finally got it. I think it was at this point they knew exactly 
what was about to happen because they'd heard this promise before, this promise of receiving the Holy Spirit. Let's go back to Luke for a minute. Luke chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. This is when they first received this promise. Jesus said to them, when you are brought, when you are brought before synagogues and rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you'll say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Jesus told them, promised them, that they would receive the Holy Spirit specifically to enable them to endure a great time of testing. So it's probably not too hard now to see the point of their question. They hoped that this would all be over with pretty soon. Maybe they could skip the arrests and the accusations and the pain and the trials that Jesus said they were going to experience, or at least maybe to know their limits. But Jesus' reply to them reminded them that testing, trials, difficulties, was actually required. The kingdom of God and its citizens will ultimately feel great tension from the divisions, from the kingdoms, plural, of the devil. Why is that? That's probably our question. Well, it's because kingdoms are systems that require allegiance, loyalty, sacrifice, victims. The kingdoms of the world are built upon a complex fabric of society with social rules and expectations. I want you to listen to how New Testament scholar Nancy Elizabeth Bedford explains this. This is her quote. We need to be careful when we talk about sacrifice, especially when we demand sacrifices from other people. This present evil age, as it's called in Galatians, the system under which we live demands human sacrifices for the good of the market, for the good of Dow Jones, for the good of multinational corporations, for the good of the military-industrial complex, and for the good of the few who concentrate most of the wealth in the world. I love this statement. She concludes with this. Jesus came to put an end to a sacrificial system that requires victims. The kingdom of God, it has no rules. It requires no sacrifice because Jesus has already satisfied that. You might remember from an earlier session when we read that Jesus gave the kingdom of God to infants. You can find that in Luke chapter 18. Let me just kind of give you a reminder here. Jesus gave the kingdom of God to those who had no ability to sacrifice or persuade or earn entrance. His gift to those babies relaxed any requirements for righteousness. He gave these babies a lifetime of freedom when he gave them the kingdom of God. What we learn from this is that it is God's will that the divisions of the world would be healed 
in the name of Jesus. That's his, that's his will. And he wanted, Jesus wanted witnesses to testify to this. So what we find here is that his followers needed some street cred. And they're about to get it. After he spoke these words, Jesus returned to the Father. That's it. But his ascension, it's the end of the beginning. But right after that, we see the beginning of the end. Now, how do we know this? And why did I call it this? Well, you're going to have to go to Acts chapter 2 for this. So if you're still in Acts, you can turn over there. So you know the story. Peter is speaking to a crowd of people after receiving the Holy Spirit. The very first line of his speech is this from Acts chapter 2, verse 17. In these last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. In other words, the end has begun. The letter of Hebrews has a similar timestamp. Listen to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. Almost the same phrase. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. In other words, this timestamp is not an anomaly in the New Testament. The ending of all things began after Jesus' ascension. And the beginning of the end began with Jesus' plan in action. He's about to give his witnesses some serious street cred. He's for real about erasing these divisions. Let's go back to Acts chapter 1. And we're going to read beginning in verse 12. Listen to what happens following Jesus' ascension. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill they called the Mount of Olives. It was a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. Verse 14, they all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. I don't know if you caught it. I don't know if you caught it there. But we just read a momentous text in the New Testament. Because it's right here that the kingdom of God is restored to Israel. Israel, her representatives, will be the first to erase divisions. In fact, Israel will continue to do just this throughout the entire book of Acts. Let me let me show you just what happened here. As soon as Jesus ascended, you got to notice this. As soon as Jesus ascended, men and women and Jesus's family were together and they were praying together. Luke is a great writer. He's a careful writer. And he actually used a unique word right here to describe exactly what was happening. 
In fact, no other New Testament writer uses the word that Luke uses right here in verse 14. Our English translations, the Bibles that you're reading, say that they prayed together, or maybe your translation says they joined together. But a better word here, I think a more literal translation of this word is that they prayed unanimously, unanimously, with one mind. They were united. Don't underestimate the gravity of what what we just read. Women, mostly overlooked in Jewish religious rituals, at this moment, immediately following the ascension of Jesus, became active and equal participants in the kingdom of God. Right here. Women and men were not divided into separate courts and spaces. They weren't divided up and siphoned out to pray at predetermined times with predetermined liturgies. Right here in the upper room, the divisions that manifested themselves at the fall of humanity in the garden were now restored. They've been erased. This is the beginning of the end. And it's a vision that's still being realized right here among us. I think we can admit, though, that it feels like a rather long ending, right? I mean, we're still in the middle of this ending some two millennia later. Let's just be honest. Along the way, though, along the way, throughout the history of humanity, this message of unity, it's been hijacked by other darker forces. We live in a world that doesn't erase divisions in Jesus' name, but rather in the names of science or government or legislation or towns or subdivisions. We still live in a system that divides us while trying to unite us. In fact, one of the more contentious words in our vocabulary right now is the word mandate. Civil authorities claim the power to mandate behavior for the sake of compliance and unity. Now, whether or not they have the legal ability to do that, that's beyond the scope of what we're talking about here. But rather, I present this to you as proof that unity in our world, outside of the church, is a forced commodity. Notice that nothing in the previous story spoke of anything being forced. It's not there. Instead, what we find is a clear picture of who Jesus was. We find a clear picture of what he did that compelled people to live differently and to be together, to live together, to ignore the system that their world promoted and to be a combined unit, a force for the name of Jesus. We find ourselves in the kingdom of God when we realize that no other kingdoms can stand against us. We, you and me, we are the mobile witnesses to the world that the love and the mercy and the grace of Jesus 
is the absolute most compelling thing that we could have ever been offered. Let's pray together as we close. Thank you, Jesus, for your life, for your death, for your resurrection, for your ascension. We thank you, God, for including this story as you inspired Luke to write these words, to give us this real, genuine look at togetherness. People who understood and embraced the magnificence of being bought at a price of witnessing your crucifixion and your resurrection and knowing that the, that the world is now different. There's nothing that can now separate us from you, God. That's what Jesus does for us. We worship you, Lord, for this. We praise you for this, and we thank you for this story. Bless us all by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.